Good evening, everybody. How's it going? It is uh, is good to have you guys here. Welcome to Calvary Bible Church, and welcome to weekend two of the uh, Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship Conference. So I assume if you're here, that means you didn't get enough last time. Is that is that a safe assumption? So uh, you think you went home with a full brain last time. We're going to do it again to you this weekend, but Lord willing, uh, you have a month to digest like you did between today and last time. And uh, but no, it's a privilege uh, to have you here. Uh, my name is Keith Palmer. I'm the associate pastor at Grace Bible Church down in Granbury. We have any Hood County uh, folks here? All right. Got some Hood County? All right. Very good. It's maybe some Somerville County, maybe some uh, Parker County. All right. Well, good to have all you here. And um, you know, as a pastor, I, I can't think of a better way to spend a weekend than with brothers and sisters in Christ around God's Word, and and not to speak hypothetically or, or um, theoretically, but to talk about how the Word of God and the personal work of Jesus is the most relevant topic to think about life problems and counseling issues. So, I hope that's why you're here. I hope the first weekend encouraged you. How many? Of you, this conference is your like really first exposure to biblical counseling. I'm curious. Okay, what do you think so far? Is it, has it been helpful? Okay. So, so weekend one, just to kind of give you a method to our madness, weekend one is laying a theological foundation. That's why we do Bible college in an hour. That's why we talk about sanctification and the growth process and then learning some of those skills, how to listen and how to gather data and build a relationship and minister God's word. So that's kind of the foundation. And what we're going to do in this weekend is we're going to build on that foundation and talk about marriage and family topics. Almost all the topics you're going to get this weekend relate to marriage and family because a lot of counseling challenges and life challenges happen there. And then the November weekend, what we're going to focus on primarily is what we call our common life issues. So things like anxiety and anger and depression and uh, things like that. So, so we're going we're gonna to take that and really go deep this weekend with marriage and family and related ideas. So uh, welcome. So glad to have you here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to our topic of marriage tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're grateful. Uh, what a joy to come around your word this weekend, to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the Metroplex and even beyond. And uh, we thank you that in your kindness and grace, you give us your word that reveals who you are. It, it explains life from uh, your point of view, uh, the, the reality, the way it really is. And, and most importantly, it reveals your son, his gospel, his work to redeem us from sin and to call us into a uh, family, uh, your family, and then to grow us and change us into his image. And so we are especially thankful that we can do that in these moments. Uh, Lord, would you build new relationships, help us to make some new friends. And, and even as we interact, uh, might the things that are on our hearts uh, just be burned into us by means of your spirit that we all might be more like Jesus because of this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so whether you are married or not married, it probably covers all of you, um, maybe you've been married and you're not, maybe you hope to be married, uh, maybe you've been widowed, uh, maybe you've gone through a divorce, maybe you're a, a person aspiring to marriage one day, I want you to know that th this is relevant it's relevant if you're married, it's relevant if you're not married, it's relevant if you never want to get married, and it's relevant if you do want to get married. Because marriage is designed by God to picture something much bigger even than the marriage relationship. And we'll look at that in a moment. But So when we come to the topic of marriage, one of the questions we might ask is, 
where do you go for information? I mean, you know, nowadays we just Google everything. I, I realized this with my, I have three teenagers at home now, and I realized that um, for, for today's generation of young people, Google is their functional God, right? They, they, they ask him questions. They ask Google questions. Like, you know, it, it's really kind of interesting, that impulse. And we'll talk about the wisdom or foolishness of that later on. But where do you go for advice on marriage? Well, I read this article about a, a newspaper um, who, who interviewed a lady who was in her 90s, and she had become somewhat of a local celebrity because she had recently gotten married. I'm thinking a 90-year-old woman who's getting married, that's somebody interesting, you might be interesting to talk to about marriage. So the local news station interviewed her, and the interviewer asked questions like what it was like to be a newlywed in her 90s, and the lady responded, well, this isn't my first husband. So it's not much different than the others, she replied with a smile, and the interviewer said, oh, um, well, how many husbands have you had? And she answered, well, this one will be my fourth. Oh, okay. I was married in my 20s to a banker, and then in my 40s to a circus performer. And then after that, I married a preacher. Oh, really? Well, what does is, what is your new husband, your current husband do? Oh, he's a funeral director. <laughs> uh, the interviewer laughed and then asked how she came to marry all these men with such different backgrounds and personalities and uh, the lady smiled, 90-year-old lady smiled and said, well, it all made sense to me. I, I married one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. <laughs> right? Are you awake now? I know it's a long, been a long week. It's Friday night. Let's turn to the true source of where we learn what marriage is about, uh, the Word of God. And, and we don't, we, we can't even get out of the very first chapter of the Bible in the very first book without stumbling upon marriage. So let's start there. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1? Uh, and even in the, the short time that I've been in ministry and, and been married and uh, raising children now, um, it's interesting even when I teach on marriage how that's had to change. Because we live in a culture that in the, just in the last 10 to 15 years, uh, the church has had to define even what we're talking about. What is marriage? And sadly, in our culture, uh, that has been redefined into something that is outside of, of the boundaries of the Word of God. And, and even in recent years, uh, we can't even get to defining marriage until we stop and pull the car over and and talk about what is a man and a woman? What is gender? So I'm taking a little bit of liberty here because when you and I come alongside hurting people that are struggling in their marriage or maybe wanting to be married, uh, we, we can't assume what we assumed 10, 15, 20 years ago, that, that the, the mainstream American view of marriage and gender roughly corresponded to the Bible's view, to God's view. We have to define those things more explicitly. So, so let's do that, and that's where we're going to start. Uh, we're going to start, if we're going to understand marriage, that we understand something of a biblical view of gender. Now, as we come to Genesis 1, you know that this is the most amazing chapter because God, who's always been around, eternal, glorious, righteous, is going to speak the universe into existence in six normal days and everything in it, right? So we're, we're going to... We're going to fast forward through those first five days and get to day six, the highlight of the creation week. And we're going to come to the, the last scene, the very last thing that God's going to do before he ceases creating. 
and uh, we come to chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Notice the, uh, the binary nature of gender there. Uh, male and female, he created them. And, and as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and in Scripture, we understand that whether it's gender or marriage, whether it's roles, whether it's how we handle conflict, whether it's how we raise our children, whether it's how we deal with anger, how we deal with a, a wayward child, how we deal with abuse or personal hurt, whatever it is, that, that following Christ means we go to the Word of God to look for definitions and concepts and counsel on how we deal with all those things. So when we say uh, on the basis of the word of God, God defines gender this way or God defines marriage this way, we're not speaking just another opinion into a pluralistic culture. We're not just talking about one more idea in a sea of ideas that are all on equal playing field. No, as Christians, we would say my idea doesn't mean anything. But God's definition is everything. Because he's God and he has the right to tell us how things are. And, of course, he invented human beings. He invented marriage. And so we go to him to look for these definitions. I, I say that because sometimes when, when we talk to people about gender, they say, oh, that's so narrow-minded, that's so bigoted. And, and you, you may get that as, as I have. And what we want to do is say, friend, what, what, I'm, what I'm telling you is not just my opinion. I don't think my opinion's any better than yours. What I'm encouraging you to do is what we all should do, and that is submit to the Creator who designed us and made us all, because really His definition and His concept and His viewpoint is, is really the only one that matters at the end of the day. So notice with me, again, very briefly, because we may have to do this in, in premarital counseling, marriage counseling, evangelism, is think about gender. Notice with me, number one, that gender is rooted in the reality that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. We see that there in verse 26. Both men and women, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God. God created two distinct genders, male and female, that both image his glory. Now, now we got to stop right here. I know it's Friday night. I know it's been a long week. And, and we just jumped into the deep end of the pool theologically, didn't we? What it means, listen very closely, what it means to be male and female, what it means to understand gender is rooted in the most valuable, weighty, glorious reality there is. And that is, it's rooted in the nature and character of God itself, himself. As, as we would image God as male or female, that's rooted in the reality of who God is, making us in his image and likeness. So you know what that means? If I move out of alignment with the Bible and I start saying, well, maybe I can define my own gender or maybe I can come up with my own ideas or maybe I can invent this own way of thinking about it, I'm messing with the very image and, and picture of God himself stamped on the heart of every human being. We're messing with the character of God when we do that because people are made to reflect who he is. Does that make sense? 
So, so this is serious stuff. This isn't about, you know, I, I've never felt like a girl and, and I'm a boy, but I've never felt like a boy. That, it, it's much deeper than that. And we want to help people, especially that are confused about this, to see that only the Creator is qualified to tell us who we really are and to trust His judgment in that. But it's rooted in the image and likeness of God. Number two, gender is revealed most simply through a person's chromosomal and anatomical makeup. Of course, when Moses wrote this account, this inspired account of the creation week, um, human beings weren't aware of what even a chromosome was. Or, you know, what, you know Watson and Crick hadn't discovered the double helix of DNA. And, and we didn't know, you know, nucleotide sequences and, and ribonucleic acid and all that good stuff that we learned in biology that probably most of us have forgot by now, right? But the reality is, how do you know male or female? Answer, biology. God makes us different anatomically, physically, even chromosomally. Do we understand that that the actual genetics that we all possess are fundamentally different? And and that makes God's design something that is, is observable and is something that is even provable on a scientific level. So... Gender is, first of all, rooted in in being an image bearer. Second, it's revealed most basically in biology. Number three, gender is fully realized and expressed through the pursuit of biblical masculinity and femininity. We're not going to talk about this. Uh, We'll talk about those more when we talk about uh, the husband's role and the the wife's role. and What what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman in terms of the character? But, But I want you to see this. That, that part of being a man or a woman made in the image and likeness of God is not just saying, okay, I have certain chromosomes or I go by the term boy or girl, but it, it actually is a, um, a destination. That to be made a man, God calls men to be a certain type of person in their character, in their role, in, in how they treat other people, in their work, in, in their care of other people. And likewise, God calls women to a certain type of character in their role and how they treat other people and, and how they function in, in church and in the home and in society and all the rest. So, so it's, it's, it's image bearer rooted in God, revealed in biology, but then gender is, is trajectory. It, it's, it's looking out to saying God wants a man to be become God's kind of man. And God wants a woman to become God's kind of woman. And it's not enough to just say, well, I have these chromosomes and that's who I am. It's, it's, there's a purpose behind being a man or a woman. And I, I mentioned this a moment ago, but not just the character, but the roles. Uh, gender is fundamentally connected to God's design for marriage and family. That's why we're talking about this, because you can't talk about roles in marriage without talking about, well, what is a man and what is a woman? And uh, d- did you believe, uh, some of you that, that maybe are... are uh, are seasoned Christians here, right? You've been a Christian for a long time. Would you ever thought we came, we, we, we got to the point where we would have to define this? Um, and we'll, we'll talk about, I, I think the Bible actually predicts that society would get to the point that we would be confused even about our own gender. And I want to show you a passage that I think reveals that. But suffice it for now to say, this is what we're thinking about in terms of gender. So here's our, here's our definition uh, many years ago, our elders in our church down in Granbury got together and kind of seen the handwriting the wall in society. We said, you know what, we, we need to put a statement in our church constitution and doctrinal statement about what gender is and about what marriage is, because we can't assume those things anymore. So here's what we came up with. Gender is a spiritual, biological aspect of a person established by God in a person's creation, revealed most fundamentally in a person's biological sex, and rooted in the reality that God made both male and female in his image and likeness. Furthermore, the full breadth of what it means to be either male or female is comprehensively revealed in Scripture 
as biblical masculinity, God's kind of man, biblical femininity, God, God's kind of woman, each involving character, duties, and responsibilities before God. Okay, does that make sense? Are we on the same page? So again, it's important that we start there. And again, if, if you're doing premarital counseling, uh, you're doing youth counseling, college singles, professionals, uh, we, we, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're ministering to and not assume things that are no longer able to be assumed in society. Okay, so hopefully that will be help you, helpful in doing that. Okay, so if you're still in Genesis chapter 1, I, I, uh, I, I blew through um, uh, those points there. Uh, obviously, those biblical references there are very important uh, to establish everything that we talked about. We're going to come back to those verses in some way, shape, or form before the weekend's done, okay? So we'll get a little more, little more scripture time there. But for now, let's think then about marriage, okay? If that's gender... Let's move and, and talk, first of all, about marriage. And, and this is neat because not only do we see in Genesis 1 and 2 God making the first man and woman, but we see him perform the first wedding. We see him actually design marriage in front of our eyes and perform the first wedding ceremony. So let's look at the text, and then we'll, we'll pull some principles from it. Okay, look at chapter 2. Remember, chapter 2 in Genesis is not some sort of recreation or some sort of alternate account. What chapter 2 is doing is it's looking backward to day 6, which is summarized in chapter 1, and uh, God's going to give us more particular information about how he specifically made Adam and Eve. And that's, that's what we're looking at here is we're looking at the detailed account of how that works. So we know, uh, looking at chapter 2, that God made Adam... Uh, It says there in um, chapter 2, verse 7, God formed Adam, the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living being. And God plants a garden, and he puts Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it and to work on it. He he gave Adam commands about what he could and couldn't eat. And then, uh, so verse 15, there he is in the garden, and he's commanded that. And um, God says in chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So imagine this. You're sitting in the grandstands watching this happen on day six, right? And um, I mean, what was that like? Boom, you know, giraffe. Boom, zebra, you know. Boom! And God's just out of the ground making these creatures. And, and they would come to Adam, and Adam would say, um, orangutan. All right, next. You know, and, you know, parrot. All right, see you guys later. You know, and as he's doing this exercise, you say, why does God do this? Why here? Because as Adam is naming the animals, he's making an observation. He's going, boy giraffe, girl giraffe. Okay. Boy zebra, girl zebra. Boy, boy orangutan, girl orangutan. Boy parrot, girl parrot. And right, and, and boy girl, boy girl, male female, male female, leading to the conclusion. Look what it says there. The man gave names to all the cattle, but it says there. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. The exercise of naming the animals was designed to show Adam there was no woman, there was no female. Some, you know, th- this other gender that was the same as him in terms of being a human being but very different from him and that she was a girl and he was a boy and, and a footnote on that because i think sometimes we misinterpret this passage when it says it's not good for a man to be alone 
You know, Adam wasn't sitting in the garden singing country music songs about how lonely he was. Okay? It's, it's, he was alone. He was not lonely. And those are two very different things. It's God that actually says to Adam, it's not good you're by yourself. Adam didn't have that awareness until this exercise that there was no super suitable helper for him. Um, so we, we, we think that Adam, Adam was, was joyful and contented in his walk with God as a single. And, and, and you know, that, that, that's a good reminder. If you happen to be single today, or maybe you find yourself single even though you don't want to be, uh, or some other situation, that, that we recognize that aloneness is, is not a path of joyless discontentment, that Adam had a walk with God and a, fulfillness, a fulfillment in God, even though God said, I think it's better for you, in this case, to be married. Okay, So, so take, take encouragement in that, and, and we see that um, you know, Jesus is a Savior who can bring us joy and contentment in whatever our circumstances happen to be. That's what Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 4. Okay, so back to the text. Um, so, uh, so he put, you know, you know the, the story. He puts him asleep, makes him asleep, uh, does spiritual surgery, pulls out a rib, fashions Eve from the rib that he removes, and uh, there's there's uh, Eve. Adam wakes up, a little groggy. Verse 23, he says, "Oh wow, what's he been doing all day?" Boy giraffe, girl giraffe, boy zebra, girl zebra, boy orangutan, girl orangutan, boy girl, boy girl, boy girl, boy girl. There's no one like me. God puts him to sleep, does surgery, wakes up. Adam's, you know, he looks, he sees her, and the Hebrew literally says, that's her. This one. In fact, the the English translation actually masks it. He says the same phrase three times. This one, this one, this one. Now, Going back to our, our thought about gender, how did he know that? Because she was a girl. Just like him, as a human being, but wonderfully different. And he recognized that. This, is now, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. Ish is man in Hebrew. Isha is woman in Hebrew. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, man. Um, An interesting footnote here, when he talks about bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, if you track that phrase through the Old Testament, it becomes a covenant formula. So it's possible that what Adam is actually saying here, we can't beat the pulpit too hard as we say, but it's possible that what he's doing is he's actually covenanting with her in marriage. This would be the first primitive marriage vow, we might say based on the language as it's used in the Old Testament. Verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and wife, his wife were naked and not ashamed. You know the story, right? That's a lot of review. So I'm just going to go very quickly in terms of probably pointing out the obvious, but again, we're trying to build a biblical picture of marriage, and so we want to make sure that we're, we're getting it right here. Notice, first of all, that marriage is about one man, defined biblically, One woman, defined biblically, who leave father and mother, that's chapter 2, verse 24, that last verse we read there, who commit to God and one another, that's the vows implied. Now, I'm going to hit pause in looking at Genesis, and I'm going to say, what does that commitment look like? Well, if we look at Ephesians, which we'll look at in a moment, if we look at 1 Corinthians 11, 
If we look at other passages in the Bible about marriage, we recognize that that commitment made to God and one another involves roles. It involves uh, striving to be a certain type of character in how we live. It, it commits to faithfulness or exclusivity in the relationship and a permanence. What God has joined together, let no man separate, right? So those are sort of the four areas that um, a man and a woman are committing to, to God first and to one another in the presence of witnesses. And this is why we do marriage vows. This is why, uh, you know, we, we have that, that awkward moment in the ceremony when the bride and, women, and, and groom are real nervous and they have to talk. You know, I'm a preacher. I, I get the best seat in the house when that happens. And, uh, and they're nervous and they're shaking and they're trying to remember what they're... But that's why we do that, because it's a covenant. It's a promise that they're making to one another, not just that we make up, but it's a promise that is rooted in what God says marriage is. Um, so roles, character, faithfulness, and permanence. And uh, again, notice uh, the covenantal language here, bone of my bones. We don't turn there, but in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible makes explicit that the marriage promise, the marriage commitment is a covenant. Uh, remember Paul tells, or, uh, Solomon tells his boys in Proverbs 2 uh, about the wife who forsakes her co- the covenant of her youth in marriage and, and goes and, and engages in sexual immorality. Uh, God joins them together as one. We see that here in, in chapter 2, verse 20, 24, that they are, uh, man leaves his father and mother. He's joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Jesus, commenting on this verse in Matthew 19, says it's God who joins them together. And that's often how we end a marriage, uh, a wedding ceremony, right? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Or as the King James says, let no one put asunder, right? It's permanent. It's designed to be a permanent relationship since God is joining them together meaning it's a lifelong relationship, okay? Can you see how we got all that from this this story, these verses here? Okay, I'm not making this up. You're not making it up. This is rooted in what God says marriage is to be. So if we put all that in a little definition, we get something like this. Marriage is a lifetime commitment that one man and one woman make to one another where God joins them together as one flesh in order to fulfill his intended purposes, okay? And again, we, we can expand on that a lot, but, but that, I think, in a nutshell, gets to the, the bottom of what it is in summary. Okay, so if you're with me on that, let's talk about now, what are some of the purposes for marriage? And some of these we've already kind of alluded to, so let me just go through here. Um, you know, this is the CBCD conference, you're drinking from a fire hose, right? You, you, know, you know what you got yourself into. But, but again, the reason we give you notes, the reason we give you time is to digest it, think about it. And, you know, you may be counseling to somebody. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing a, a wonderful premarital with a, a great couple right now, and we just talked about this last night over a Zoom call. And uh, it's really amazing to just talk about the, the design of God in marriage, especially with two young people that are believers that are aspiring uh, to that. So let's talk about some of those purposes here. First of all, we already talked about this. Uh, God says it's not good for a man to be alone, and, and that's the purpose of companionship. Back to verse chapter two, verse fifteen. Um, uh, excuse me, that's actually that's a typo. That should be verse eighteen. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable uh, for him." And uh, again, it's not it's not loneliness, although marriage does, um, you know help with in the companionship and, and feeling lonely. But again, what, what God is not saying is so much loneliness, but it's saying that for most people, God intends for them to be married because the two are better than one. 
There, there's a companionship here. There's a friendship. Um, the, the, that, that aloneness that God says is not good um, is remedied in the provision of Eve to Adam. And there's wonderful companionship that happens there. Notice that that companionship, if we just read the verse there, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That, that word helper uh, is not a derogatory term, that there's no inferiority implied in it. In fact, that word helper is used of the persons of the Trinity uh, in terms of uh, their role there. So it's saying that that person is designed to assist um, in this case, the man, the, the woman is designed to assist or help, come alongside the man and help him in the relationship. But, but notice the modifier there. What kind of helper is she? She's a helper suitable for him. Um, this is not a clone. This is a human being, but a human being that may be... Very, how many of you married a clone in your marriage? Just like you. How many of you married somebody very different than you? Yeah. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands because I don't want to solve. I don't want to start marriage conflict, and we don't talk about conflict resolution until later on tonight. But um, I bet for a lot of you that was frustrating at some point. She, she's just, she just doesn't see it the way I see it. Yeah, she's a girl, and and God intends to use those differences. Hear me. God intends to use those differences to bolster. Your Christ-likeness and her Christ-likeness. God intends to use those different differences to complement each other. I'll tell you this, you, you, you won't believe me, but you can ask her. Um, do you know why I watch football? Because my wife likes football. I never watched football until I met my wife. Craziest thing in the world, I know, I know. Guys, yes, she's available for counseling. If she, you know, help, help your wife to kind of learn... You know, the, the true story, we're sitting there, I'm, a true story, we're sitting there Sunday night watching Sunday night football, and she'll look over at me and she's like, didn't that quarterback play for Stanford last year? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. You know, because she's just, she and her dad grew up watching football together. It was kind of their little thing, and she just loves football. She understands football. She understands defenses and offenses, and I just sit there and go, okay, honey, whatever you say. Um, we're different, but those differences are designed to make the whole marriage stronger and better and more effective. Number three, consonants. We see that at the end of the chapter here. Oneness. The two will become one flesh. You say, what does that mean? It's this idea of oneness or unity or togetherness. And, and it's, uh, it's such a simple term with innumerable uh, implications. I mean, think about this. God intends... This very different man and this very different woman united and they're able to get along and function together because of Jesus that unites them together. Um, they're going to be one. They're going to be together in their finances. They're going to share everything they have in terms of what they own and their provisions and their money. They're going to share a social life. Not that she can't have her friends and he can't have his friends, but but the, the majority of the time, they're doing relationships together. They're ministering together as much as possible. They're trying to invest in other people as much as possible. They're raising children 
together, even though they might have different roles. They're, they're on the same page. They're working like that together. Emotions, right? They're, they're sharing life emotionally and the struggles of life together. They're working together with, uh, with whatever the arrangement is. If it's a, a house project, if, if, um, you know, she's there ministering to the children when they're young and in the home so he can go, uh, uh bring in an income, um, the spiritual side, they're walking with God together. They're sharing their, their walk with God in that. They're, they're learning to be like Christ together. They're talking through spiritual changes and struggles together. Um, aspirational, they, they come together prayerfully. Lord, what does the future hold for us? How can we best honor you? What, what, is, what does life look like uh, in terms of how we serve God and walk with him? They go through trials together. They go through difficult circumstances together. And, and, and they come together physically. The, the sexual union that is implied by verse 24 there, one flesh, that physical coming together in intimacy is designed to physically picture the oneness that God intends in all these other relationships. Uh, physical sex is just a picture of the oneness that they should be in every other area of life. Which a footnote is why couples will have bedroom issues, as we call them, if they're totally on different pages in all those other areas of life. God rigged it like that. God designed it like that. Because he wants couples to be one in all other ways. And then that allows the physical intimacy to work as God intended. Okay, so companionship, complementarity that leads to completion, consonance or oneness. I'm a preacher, I've got to alliterate. Number four, children. We saw that back in chapter 1, right? Verse 28, as uh, God makes male and female in his image. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, the, the wonderful blessing of children is one of God's designs. And, you know, when I'm doing premarital, like I'm doing with this couple now and in years past, one of the things I always ask them is, what do you think about children in your future marriage? And, uh, you know, lots of different opinions on that. But what this verse is saying is God intends as a normal purpose for marriage that a couple would be open to children. They're, they're a blessing from God. And, and that's one of God's purposes. Now, a footnote to that, if we were to fill in some of the other things the Bible says, God must allow that couple to physically be able to bear children. So a couple that, that can't do that physically is not, is not being disobedient to what God says here, right? God has to open the womb. And notice all the questions the Bible doesn't answer. When are we supposed to have kids? Can we wait? Can we not wait? Should we have a bunch of children? Or, or What's the number? God leaves all that open to wisdom and other biblical principles. But, but the point here is that God intends, as a normal function of marriage, uh, for, for a couple to be open to children. Okay? Uh, number five is contentment contentment and we're going to look at this passage in detail in a moment okay so i'm just going to uh tell you what it means and then we'll come back to it in a moment but um the bible's going to say in first corinthians 7 uh you remember the corinthians were all confused right they're, they're brand new christians saved out of this pagan gentile culture where there's idolatry and debauchery and and all the rest right we, we all understand what Greek culture looked like in the first century. So there, there are these brand new Christians that are married going, is it okay to have sex now that we're Christians? Like, is it, is it okay in our marriage to do that? 
And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, a lot, a lot of what he's doing is he's responding to some of the questions that the Corinthians had sent him. And in chapter 7, he says, now concerning about the things that you wrote, it's good for a man to have his wife and a wife, her husband. And of course, Paul's using um, euphemistic language there. He, he's being very uh, wise and astute in how he's describing it, but he's talking about uh, the bedroom. He's talking about physical intimacy in marriage. He's saying, yes, it's good that a Christian couple engages in physical intimacy with one another in their marriage. And then he goes on to talk about uh, how all that works. But one of the things he says is, he says that physical intimacy, the, the normal, is regular and continuous. And that there's, there's an exception, right, to abstain for a time for spiritual purposes when both parties agree to that. But he says, don't, don't have an extended period of abstinence because that creates an occasion for sexual temptation. So one of the purposes of marriage is, is to provide contentment in the sexual realm and as a deterrent to sexual sin. Okay, we'll have a whole talk about intimacy this weekend. I think Pastor Terry is going to be talking to you about that. So, but just for now, understand that that sexual contentment is one of God's good purposes in marriage. And then finally, characterization. This is probably my, my favorite point, that God designs marriage to be a picture of the gospel. And again, we'll talk about this in a minute, but remember what Paul says in Ephesians? Husbands, love your wives just as what? So what's the, what's the model? What's the example? Jesus. Uh, and how does it go? Um, that God demonstrates his own love for us, and yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, that's the picture of what love ought to look like in our marriage. That when we say, till death do us part, the, the, the motive, the picture, the example, and even the fuel, right? The, the, the spiritual energy to do what God calls us to do all comes from Christ. And on those days when it might be hard in marriage, none of us has a perfect marriage, right? We'd acknowledge that. None of us has a perfect marriage. Uh, some of us have really, really hard marriages. Uh, some of us have marriages that, that God has seemed to bless in a unique way. But whatever our experience, Christ is the person we look to, to be uh, men, the husband that God calls us to be, like Christ. Uh, ladies, we know that same passage says, wives, follow your husbands, be respectful to your husbands, as to the Lord, that, that, that your example as a wife is thinking of the body of Christ and how we relate to Jesus, our head. And you're going, wait a minute, but, but my husband didn't like Jesus, right? He's not perfect. That's the point. That's the point is a wife is following her husband and respecting her husband as if she was following Christ. Not, based, not on the basis of how her husband's doing. Uh, he's an imperfect man. He, he may be on any you know, page of sanctification. But to follow him as if you were following Christ, guided by the principles of Christ. So, so that, that's how marriage pictures the gospel. Because when, when we're doing marriage, husbands loving like Christ loved the church, wives following husbands and respecting them like the church follows Christ, we see a picture of the gospel. And um, did you know that your marriage isn't about you ultimately? Ultimately? It's about God's reputation. It's about the picture of, of Jesus coming, living and dying and rising again, calling us to himself and a relationship of, of Jesus with his people. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Okay? But th that just kind of gives us an overview of purposes there in terms of what we're thinking about. 
Okay, let's talk next about the priority of marriage. The priority of marriage. And if you're in Genesis, just flip back to chapter 2. Look at the end of the chapter there again. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You say, what does that mean? Well, look, okay, I I got a picture here for you because I love you guys. See, look at this. Look at the happy couple. Uh, Look at those parents. So happy they're getting ready to get rid of their, their boy there, right? And then you got her parents. They're not sure about this guy. Um, okay, so, so how, how's this supposed to work? Okay, for this cause, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and they live happily ever after, right? The two become one flesh, right? That, that's how it's supposed to work. But I've observed, and maybe you've observed too, that sometimes it doesn't go that smoothly. For example, for this cause, a man leaves his father and mother, and she, er, oh, you know, the first time something breaks on the house, she's calling her dad instead of talking to her husband. You say, well, what's the harm in that? Well, maybe, maybe nothing, but there's a, there's an ideological change that there's a, a, a mind change that has to happen that says, you know, my husband is the priority relationship now. I need to go to him first. I need to talk to him first. And if we both decide, hey, my dad's real knowledgeable about this, let's call dad. Okay, great, do it. But sometimes that creates tension, doesn't it? Some of you are nodding your head. You know what this is like, don't you? Okay. Or for this cause, a man leaves his, or a woman leaves her father and mother. Man leaves his father and mother, and he kind of, well, maybe back and forth and back and forth and not sure what he's doing. And you know, I've seen it all, man. I'm a biblical counselor. I, I've seen dizziness and when it comes to sort of, so what do we mean when we're talking about leaving and cleaving as we call it again th- this this can poison a marriage as simple as it is this can bring heartbreak and and uh, broken relationships and conflict and uh, and so that little phrase leaving and cleaving that there is a world of wisdom in that so let's just let's just talk about that a little bit okay what, what does it actually mean it what it really means is God intends the marriage to be the priority human relationship. That word one flesh, that little phrase one flesh, is not used to talk about any other relationship, any other human relationship uh, in the Bible. Okay? So, so what does this mean? And I'm, I'm leaning on one of my mentors, Wayne Mack, here uh, in his book, uh, Strengthening Your Marriage, which is really good. What does leaving and cleaving not mean? Well, it doesn't mean you break off all family relationships. It doesn't mean you can never solicit counsel from them. You know, moms and dads are wise. They have more life experience. If they're Christians, they've got Christian experience. And uh, it's one of the greatest resources a young couple can have is godly, experienced, wise parents. So it doesn't mean you break that off. It doesn't mean there's no responsibility. Uh, many, of you, many of you are probably in the season of life right now where you're caring for an aging parent, right? And you're, it's, it's the last way we honor mom and dad is we, we care for them in that last season of life when maybe they have medical issues or they're losing cognitive faculties, um, they're in financial issues. So it doesn't mean we bear no responsibility. We honor parents throughout life. It doesn't mean we abandon the family. It doesn't mean if you live in Fort Worth, you have to move to Maine, although sometimes that helps, I guess, um, but no, no, what it does mean is you're, you're, it's, it's a mentality change, right? You're leaving behind a dependency relationship where this new husband and this new wife are no longer depending on mom and dad. Relationally, emotionally, physically, financially, 
and all the rest, right? That's what leaving means. And again, that's, that's not saying, you know, you can't, hey, we want to bless you guys and, you know, give you a check so you can, you know, buy something. It's not saying that. It's just saying there, there's not a dependence on that anymore. That's what leaving means. It means you're leaving behind a, a, a parent's temporary God-given authority. Leaving means that that authority changes and a, a new couple is not under their parents' authority like they were when they were in the home. Uh, a parent-centered and controlled manner of living. This is hard. And parental approval. This is hard. All I have to do is say two words. Holidays and vacations. Are you with me? Okay. You know how it is? Maybe, you know, you get newly married and you're talking about that first vacation, that first Christmas break. If, if my wife were here, she would laugh at this and, and would be totally okay with me telling you. Our first big fight was decorating a Christmas tree. Because there's the way you're supposed to do it. And then there was the way I was doing it. You know, at Christmas time, it, it, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Um, in her family, they get up on Christmas morning and they, um, they all shower and get their best clothes on. They have this big fancy breakfast. They cook that. They have a wonderful Christ-centered devotional, you know, and then they clean up the kitchen, you know, kind of put stuff away. You know, it's about 10, 11 o'clock by now. And, um, uh, and then they get all the presents and everybody sits in a circle and they divide them up. And then one by one, everybody opens one package. And, uh, you know, by about New Year's Eve, we're done, right? So that's how that goes. In my family, with my two brothers, we had a saying called, the sun's up, so are you. And it was like Mach 2 with your hair on fire, every man for himself. There was bloodshed, paper wrapping going everywhere. And, and we're done by like 6.30 a.m. We're in our PJs. You know, everybody stinks because we haven't had a shower. And you think that caused a little bit of tension the first time we did Christmas together? Why? Because I hadn't left my mom and dad. I hadn't changed and said, this dear woman is my priority now. And what she thinks is most important. Not what my family thinks or not my tradition, not her tradition. That's the fun of, of being married is you get to come up with your own traditions. You, you get to say, well, you do it that way. Well, let's do it this other way. And, and maybe you borrow traditions. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe you borrow vacation spots and, and, and the way you already always did, but, but you don't have to. And, and I think moms and dads, the parents that are letting go, sometimes that's the harder adjustment, right? Where it's like they're off and you're having to let go of all those expectations and all those memories and all those years of doing it the way it's supposed to be done. But if we don't do that... We put a stumbling block in a new marriage. We don't want to do that. So, again, uh, we're, we're leaving parents of chief, as chief confidants. Again, there's nothing wrong with seeking advice, but we want to, we want to make those decisions together uh, and whatnot, okay? Uh, and, then, and then the idea of, of just one flesh, right? Um, it's a commitment to one another. It emphasizes permanence. We talked about that. God joins the, get, the, the couple together. That one flesh is emphasizing things like a unique relationship. There's no other human relationship described like that. It's a priority relationship, no higher human relationship. It's a permanent relationship. It's a team oneness, a unified relationship. And it's exclusive relationship, right? That, that, that relationship relationally, socially, physically in the sexual union and in every other realm is to be protected and guarded as exclusive to one another. Okay. Are you with me? Is this making sense? 
Okay, I hope I'm not stepping on your toes. I'm just confessing my sins to you guys. But, um, but again, when we're helping a couple in marriage, when we're doing premarital, when your neighbor comes over and says, will you help us? You know, my, my husband and I just had one of our fights again. You're going to have to sit down and explain some of this stuff. You know, I've had to talk to some in-laws. I've had to talk to some, some newlyweds to say, you know, you know, you know the problem why you're having so much problem in your marriage? You haven't really left. You haven't left. Or you're, you're refusing to cleave and take responsibility and prioritize this relationship. Sometimes it's not the in-laws that compete. Sometimes it's children. We love children. I love children. We got three of them. Um, but I can't take my children and elevate them above my relationship with my spouse. Those children are precious. They're a blessing from God. I love them to the end. But I'm not married to them. I'm not one flesh with them like I've covenanted with my spouse. So we have to be careful because this, this can get us into trouble. Speaking of a covenant, marriage is a permanent relationship. Um, turn with me in your Bible. I mentioned this earlier. to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, this is uh, probably the most significant, significant commentary on Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Jesus, as you know, is in his ministry. And as you're turning to, to Matthew 19, um, you, you remember what's going on. In, in Jesus' day, in the first century, there, there were two rabbinic schools, two schools of rabbis. You had the conservative school and the liberal school, right? There's always a conservative and liberal. And, and the, these, these, two, these two rabbinic schools, there was one of Shammai and one of Hillel, they disagreed on when a divorce was permissible. So they came to Jesus asking in chapter 19, um, they came to him, chapter 19, verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, we understand as a footnote that these folks weren't always like, oh, we just want to know Jesus, you're the son of God. They were trying to trip him up. They were trying to corner him. They were trying to cause trouble in some way. But it's a good question at the end of the day. And Jesus, I love this, you know, Jesus as the second person of the Trinity could have said, um, hi, I'm the son of God, here's the way it is. But that's not what he does. What does he do? Haven't you read your Bible? Have you not read? It's right there in the first couple of chapters that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Which is why, guys, another footnote, we can't look at Genesis 1 and 2 and take them any less authoritative as we take the Gospels and Jesus. Because Jesus is quoting from them. Jesus is assuming their authority so much so that he's like, you haven't read this? You guys are Pharisees. You're supposed to be experts in this sort of stuff. Haven't you read, right? Because the Genesis 1 and 2 are just as authoritative as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the rest of the 66 books of the Bible. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? That, that's from Deuteronomy 24. Remember, Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were a mess. They were in all sorts of sin. They had rejected God. The whole wilderness generation had died off because of sin and God's judgment. And, and it was just out of control. So Moses put in some regulations that, you know, if, if a man uh, divorces his wife and uh, marry someone else, and then they get divorced, that original wife can't go back. Why? It was a protection for the original woman, is what it was, from being taken advantage of. But that was a provision for sin. It was never intended to be uh, instructive or normative. And that's what Jesus says here, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. 
Verse 9, And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Malachi says it real clearly. God says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. Okay? So marriage is designed to be a permanent relationship. Matthew 19, 16 says, Don't separate what God has joined together. God hates divorce. As we saw in verse 9 right there, divorce may be permissible in two specific circumstances. And again, there, there are different views on this. So I would just say, talk to your elders, study it up yourself. But um, it, it appears, and this is my view, that divorce may be permissible in the case of, of unrepentant chronic sexual sin, as is alluded to here. And then again in 1 Corinthians 7.15, in the case where a unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, leaving the believer, believing spouse, the Christian spouse there going, what do I do? And Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, that, and that's your scenario. You can't do anything. You've you got to let them go. So God doesn't hold the Christian spouse who wants the marriage when her unbelieving spouse leaves. God doesn't hold them responsible in that way. So, so that's my view. Again, study it. Talk to your elders on that. But the point is that those are exceptions. I mean, those are, are rare exceptions. This is uh, God's uh, design is that it would be a permanent relationship. Okay. And, and speaking of that exception, marriage, uh, thirdly, is designed to, or uh, fifthly, is designed to be a pure relationship. Um, a pure relationship. We, we alluded to some of these already, um, but, but just, um, let's do this. Let's, let's just look at a couple of passages here. Um, we won't look at all these. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. This this may surprise you. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in, if you grew up in a, a non-Christian home or a Christian home, but I, I'm surprised because even in Christian homes, even in Christian churches, I think we come to the topic of sexual intimacy and marriage, and the mainstream Christian counsel is something like this. Just wait till you're married. And the biblical view is much more comprehensive. And again, Pastor Terry is going to come uh, later on in a session and talk to you at length about a biblical view of sexual intimacy. But, but let me just say this right now, and, and, and I can prove this biblically if, if this doesn't sound right. Do you think of sexual relationships between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage as just as holy as praying? or reading your Bible, or sharing the gospel, or hearing an expository sermon, or, you know, watching your favorite YouTube, YouTube preacher, you know, it is that God designed it to be holy and pure and good. And that's what we saw back in Genesis, right? God blesses it. Um, and the problem is in our fallenness, we, we pervert it. But look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 4, as the writer is concluding, his message here, he says this, chapter 13, verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. That, that word marriage bed is one of the um, wise, discreet ways that the Bible talks about the sexual relationship. The Bible talks about sexual relationship a lot, but it does it in holy and upright and discreet ways. And I think that's a good model for us. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Why? For fornicators and adulterers, God judges. This is serious stuff. 
God says, if you don't do this, you are making yourself liable to the judgment of God. So sexual intimacy in marriage is holy and honorable. I love what, uh, don't, you don't need to turn there. I love what Solomon tells his boys. Remember, Solomon, uh, Proverbs is all about a dad sitting down with his, his young, probably teenage sons, talking to them about life, training them in the fear of the Lord, growing them in wisdom. And in chapter 5, he talks about the adulterous woman, right? How to avoid sexual uh, sin and all that. But do you remember in the middle of Proverbs 5, what does he say? He says, drink water from your own cistern. Enjoy fresh water from your own well. And then he uses graphic language to describe the holiness and glory and pleasure and God-honoringness of enjoying intimacy with your spouse in marriage. He says, why... If that's what God designs to be to be um, intoxicated, uh, you know, emotionally speaking, with your spouse in marriage, why would you share that with somebody else? Um, anyway, I, I won't get off on all of that, but you know, that's the point. It's 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 pure. It's holy. It's honorable. It's to be undefiled, and and that's why sexual sin of any kind is to be avoided. And and good night. Today we keep inventing new ways to do that, don't we? Um, Ephesians, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 3, there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality amongst Christians. Is that hard in a perverse culture like we live in today? Absolutely, it's hard. You got young people? You got teenagers in your house? Young adults? It's hard, isn't it? Um, but that's the call. That's that's the duty. That that's how we work together. That's how we pray for each other. That's why we hold each other accountable, because we want to be uh, pure for Christ. Purity is possible by God's grace. I, I love the promise of Psalm one nineteen verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your your word. With all my heart, I've sought you. I was talking to someone the other day. Um, we usually say things like this. Um, Purity is something you have, but you can lose. That's not true. Virginity is something you start off with that you can lose, but not purity. My Bible says we're all born impure. We're all born sinful. So purity is something we have to find, first of all, in justification, right, in our salvation. And then it's something we have to grow in in sanctification. We don't start off pure and guard it. We start off impure, and by God's grace and with his help, we grow in purity. And so this is, this is a lifetime thing here. So it must be cultivated and guarded. Colossians says, Jesus, chapter 118, I'll, I'll just say this. Jesus is supposed to have first place in everything. How do two very different people, one likes to watch football, one doesn't? One likes to do Christmas morning that way and another likes to do, right? How do two very different people, how, how are they compatible? The answer is they're not. There's no such thing as compatibility. There's only a man and a woman who are loving Christ and trusting him and submitting to what God says in his word. And that joint submission to the practical lordship of Jesus is what makes marriage work. It's not his way or her way. It's both of them submitting to what God says in his way. And so a a couple has to be committed first and foremost to Jesus having first place in everything. There ought to be no realm of marriage where Jesus is not Lord. 
where the Bible is not instructive, where godly counsel is not sought, where biblical principles do not guide. That, that, that's, that's the big idea here. You know, and, and when I'm doing premarital, they can be all over the spectrum on a lot of these things if I'm convinced that they are committed to Jesus Christ and following him. You know what? They'll figure everything else out. You don't have to teach them everything. But if there's a weakness in following Christ, if there's a shaky commitment to Jesus, you can teach them and throw books at them all day and they're going to struggle because it's about the functional lordship of Jesus. He's a kind savior, isn't he? He gives grace and mercy to help. He's an ever-present help and and he has mercy and grace and, and wisdom and all the fullness of wisdom and knowledge of God. We just need to go to him. You can figure marriage out if you're looking to him. And then finally... Uh, as I mentioned, it really is a picture and a platform of marriage. That, that marriage is designed by God to be a living, breathing advertisement for the gospel. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. But my husband isn't perfect like Christ. And I'm not perfect like the redeemed church will be one day. So how do two imperfect Christians, trying really hard but failing regularly, model Christ? Well, what if that couple sins against each other And that husband humbles himself and goes to his wife and says, Sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I sinned against you. I said those horrible things. I'm, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And that wife says, I forgive you and extends grace and mercy. Or she sins against her husband, goes to him, seeks and grants forgiveness. What is the gospel about? Reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. And, and, and see, when we forgive horizontally and we reconcile horizontally and we grow together applying mercy and grace to help horizontally, what does that do? It puts the spotlight on the one who reconciles the world to himself through Christ. It's a, it's a billboard for the gospel. And brothers and sisters, you know, there are people that may never step into a church. They may never open a Bible but they may be watching how you and I do marriage. And one of the ways that we honor Christ and share the gospel is by displaying the gospel and how we treat one another in marriage. And if you're a young person, I hope you'll commit to that. If you're going to be married one day, that you'll say, you know, my marriage isn't about me. It's about displaying the gospel to a lost world that needs to see it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for these uh, few moments that we've had to think about a grand topic of marriage. And, and Lord, how I pray just that we will be humbly seeking Christ and submitting to him in our relationships, especially in marriage, and knowing that if we're doing that, uh, we can figure everything else out. And, and to remember that marriage is not ultimately about us, um, that it is about displaying the gospel. And that's why there's hope in a broken marriage. That's why there's hope in an imperfect marriage. Not for what marriage could be, humanly speaking, but for what the grace of God can do in a person in a marriage that says, I just want to be like my Savior. I just want to bless my husband or my wife, regardless of what he or she does. And that God is honored when we seek to honor him in how we do marriage. Lord, uh, whatever, whatever state we might find ourselves in tonight in marriage, might we look to you and find a contentment and joy in trying to live the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.